Well, good morning. I have a praise of my own as I was approaching this lesson today. I, I was remembering uh, Linda and I begin our 30th year in this church. That's a long time. And uh, it just makes me reflect on, you know, this church has not been just a place for us to come on Sundays and attend. This church has been our life for 30 years. It's the center of our life. It's where we raised our children. Uh, it continues to be where the center of our service is, um, is committed. And um, it has been a huge blessing. And when I, when I first came to this church, I didn't understand the relationship that we're to have with our church. I really didn't understand the relationship that we're to have with one another. I've learned all of these things over this 30 years, and I continue to learn these things, even as we study through this book of 1 Corinthians. It is a great, a great epistle to help us understand our relationship to the church and our relationship with one another. And I hope as we go through this chapter today, you get this beautiful chapter in the context in which God breathed it out through our Apostle Paul, that there is a context to this beautiful chapter. And the context is the church. It's about the church. There's another anniversary that I was thinking about that we have come across in February. In February of 2021, there was a rather significant event that occurred throughout this region. The state of Texas suffered a major power crisis, which came during the severe winter storm sweeping across the United States on February 10th through the 20th. The storms triggered the worst energy infrastructure failure in Texas state history. Do y'all remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it led to shortages of water, food, and heat. More than four and a half million homes and businesses were left without power, some for several days. At least 246 people were killed directly or indirectly, with some estimates as high as 700 killed as a result of this crisis. This winter storm caused record low temperatures at DFW Airport of minus two degrees on February 16th the coldest in North Texas in 72 years. South Lake, along with eight other cities, mostly Northeast County, um, had to, lost water because of a series of powder outages that affected the water treatment plants in Fort Worth. It's a pretty bad time, wasn't it? Well, for... for what it makes you think about if you were in this nice, comfortable, safe, efficient house you're in, all of a sudden, if you're like my house anyway, we lost our light fixtures that were making light bright. We were in total darkness. We lost heat from our wonderful AC and power unit that normally supplied us very easily. It was now frigid. Uh, we lost water, which, by the way, is what works all your commodes. <laughs> yeah. 
along with refrigerators, dishwashers, none of these things worked anymore. Our house was rendered completely useless. In the backyard, we had a freeze guard that kept our pool from freezing. It stopped. Pool froze. Pool equipment just (laughs) absolutely ruined. Still not quite as bad as my neighbor's house, whose pipes burst and exploded throughout their house and ruined their whole house. Well, we found out pretty quickly that there is an essential element to our houses functioning properly. What was that essential element, you think? Yeah, power, electricity. Without electricity, our house became a disaster zone. Well, Paul is going to teach us today the essential element that is necessary for our church to function effectively. And without it, it's much like the picture of that house that is absolutely rendered useless. That's how the church is without the essential element that we're going to discuss today. So what do you think that essential element is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Have you guessed? Yeah, it's going to be love. It's going to be love. But we're going to learn the context of this wonderful chapter. It's not just a poem for weddings, but it's meant to be instruction for our church. Let's read it together. We're actually going to go back and start in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I am also, I've been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. 
But the greatest of these three is love. All right, let's catch up where we are. Today's message is excellent way in the church, Paul's exposition on love. We're still in our Roman numeral three where Paul is answering the Corinthians' questions. Our book verse is from 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our lesson verse is from the last one we read from 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So our theme today is going to be the more excellent way of serving in the churches with, with your spiritual gift is the way of love. Three quality of loves are going to be identified in this passage. Love is essential to function. Love is expressed in action. And love is eternal in duration. We'll flesh those out as we work through this chapter. Now, last week, Dave covered for us chapter 12 on the spiritual gifts and really did an excellent job. If you didn't hear that message this message rides on top of that, and it's very helpful to go listen to it. It's, it's a, about how spiritual gifts are received by each member. They're for the common good, it says in 12.7. 12.11 says, they're spirit given as he wills. In verse 18, it says, God has placed them within the church as he desires, and that we individually are members of Christ's body. Here's the definition of spiritual gifts that Dave gave last week. It says, at the moment of salvation, every believer without exception is given a supernatural spiritual ability by the Holy Spirit. And all Christians are obligated to exercise their spiritual giftedness to the glory of God and for the building up of one another in the church. So you see right away the purpose of spiritual gifts are not for your individual exaltation, right? Their, their, their purpose is they're given to us. In other words, we don't own these. These are God's gifts that he's made us stewards of that we are able to serve one another with in the church. Every one of us has it, has these gifts, because God gave them to you at salvation. And you're obligated. You have a responsibility to serve the church with those gifts. God blesses you through that, but it's a, it's a responsibility. Now, again, in, in looking at the spiritual gifts, Dave mentioned there's, there were the temporary miraculous gifts that we'll, we'll talk about some today. Those are apostleships, miracle, healing, tongues, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, interpretation of tongues, and distinguishing of spirits. When we say those are temporary, what makes them temporary? Because they're going to go away. The permanent gifts then of preaching, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, service and helps, leading, administrating, giving, showing mercy, faith, spiritual discernment, evangelism, shepherd, and training, 
We call those the permanent ministering gifts because they have continued throughout the church age. But you know what? They're going to go away too. How many of you have been in the service today? Okay, good. You will kind of capture this when we get to verse 10. Those that aren't, haven't been in the service yet, you will capture it after this. Because Tom's going to help me out by describing when the perfect comes. We'll get there. But these spiritual gifts and the way that we are related to them is very important as we come to our chapter today. Because everything that Paul has explained to the Corinthians to correct their problems, to answer their questions, to understand their gifts so that the church functioned effectively hinges on the understanding of this chapter. It is the climax of this letter. Like I say, it's not just a beautiful, beautiful, which it is, absolutely beautiful chapter. Matter of fact, one of the commentators called this chapter the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that Paul ever wrote. But it's also the climax of where Paul's leading this Corinthian church to help them to function in the way that God has planned for his church to function. Are they functioning that way now? No, they've had the massive problems. And the reason for that is they've been missing what this essential element is in their church. You know, we went back uh, to chapter 12, verse 31. But Dave did cover this, and he covered it well, because in 31 it says, you earnestly desire the greater gifts. Some have taken that to mean, well, go after the greater gifts, Corinthians. But that's unfortunate because that's what the Corinthians were doing, and that's all that Paul was correcting, saying, don't do that. So this particular statement, the Greek indicative and imperative forms are identical, and what many translators believe he's saying here is, this is what you've done. You have earnestly desired the greater gifts, but I will show you what? I will show you a still more excellent way. An excellent way of what? A more excellent way of ministering your spiritual giftedness in the church. This is the more excellent way. Paul is calling for the church to abandon their current way of misusing their spiritual gifts and determines to show them this more excellent way. In these verses today, he will show them the more excellent way is of serving with your spiritual gift in the way of love. And like I say, these three qualities of love that are identified is love is essential for the function of the church. Love is expressed in the actions within the church. And then love is eternal in its duration. Well, first we'll come to the verses where it's this essential element for the function of the church. Look at one through three. He says, and I mean, he says it three times so that we kind of get it, right? If I speak with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels and do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he says, 
If I speak in all languages about love, I'm just irritating noise. These languages are languages, real languages, that men would understand, like on the day of Pentecost, we've talked about that. He mentions in the, ang- in the uh, uh, language of angels, I think he's speaking hypothetically here. We, we don't know if there's an angelic language. Certainly it's nowhere in Scripture. But Paul's making this point that, look, if I have this phenomenal gift where I know I do all of this uh, speaking in languages, even in angelic languages, if I could do that, which he doesn't claim to be able to do, he says, but if I could, if I did not have love, I'd become this noisy gong or clanging cymbal. So the sounds of a gong, if you just listen to a gong or a cymbal, they're monotones. And when these sounds are prolonged, they eventually become annoying to the human ear. And that's what we've learned when something's said without love. Even if it's very eloquently spoken, the spoken words are empty and they're meaningless. So that's the first of the three spiritual gifts that he's going to talk about. This would be the speaking of tongues. But he goes on to say then, if I speak of mysteries or divinely revealed knowledge by the gift of prophecy without love, I am nothing. So now he's talking about the gift of prophecy here that where he speaks, it's another, it's speaking of all the mysteries and all the knowledge. And look, Paul talks about how he is a steward of the mysteries of God. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1, he says, let, let man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. But Paul says, if I have the gifts of prophecy and know all all mysteries, does he claim to know all mysteries? Or have all knowledge, does he claim to have all knowledge? No. And even though Paul never claims to know all mysteries and possess all knowledge, he says even if he did, if he lacked love, he would be nothing. You know, he, he takes Paul at this, in, these, in these verses, he, he's using that first person, I, for a reason. He's really trying to help these Corinthians understand this includes him too. This is his relationship with the church. This is... This is what he knows of himself as well as them. Next he says, as far as essential to function, he says, if I possess the greatest faith to accomplish the impossible and yet lack love, I'm useless. I'm nothing. Look, Paul has the kind of faith. He has performed miracles, Right? 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In Romans 15, he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, 
so that from Jerusalem and around as far as Jerusalem, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. But Paul never claimed to have all faith. It's hypothetical. He says, though, even if he had all faith, if love were not present, he says, I am nothing. That's those second two gifts of prophecy and knowledge. But he goes on. Paul goes on to say, look, if I sacrifice all possessions and even my life, you see how he's building this up? This is the essential element he's talking about here. And if all of these other things were present, if love wasn't present, it would be like that destroyed house without any of the functioning appliances. It would be... It would be a mess. It's useless. He's nothing. He really wants to get that point across. He says, if I sacrifice all possessions, even my life, it has no value without love. And yet we know Paul sacrificed greatly for the church. He voluntarily gave up his rights as an apostle to receive support so he could carry out his ministry more effectively. We saw that in chapter 9. Of course, we know all the hardships he endured and he, the toll that this service had taken on him. Paul, you know, he fully understands that he's been given up for death for Jesus' sake. I mean, in Acts 21, 13, he said uh, to those um, in Caesarea, he said, when they said, look, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. And he said, look, I'm not only ready to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul, he understood all this, but he says, look, even if I, there's this great personal sacrifice, you know how useful it is without love? It's of no value. And yet Paul has always been a picture of love in the way that he shepherds the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you'd be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I especially have for you. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. I love you more. Am I to be loved less? You know, I... I don't know if you, can, if you can grasp the heart of the Apostle Paul, but he's trying to communicate that. He's saying, look, folks, this church is important. Every one of you, every single one of you in, in this church, God has put into place. And you're valuable and you're important. I care about you. I love you. Enough to be very direct and very straightforward with his corrections and with his direction and his instruction. He says all that and he really wants him to, to really know his heart because he wants your heart to be like that with one another. He wants our church, his church, to have this essential element between one another. Not just come Sunday morning, fill a pew and go home, no. No, church is far, far more than that. And this, this chapter is built to communicate that. And the essential element of a church 
If somebody asks you, what's the most important thing in church? Well, Paul tells you the essential element that we need to express to one another is love. Okay, now wait a minute. If that is so important, how do we know if we got it or not? What is it? Well, in the next set of verses, he's going to define love. And he's going to define love in three verses with 15 verbs. Three verses, 15 verbs, okay? Verbs are action. So what is love? Love's going to be action. It's going to be things that you do. He wants you to understand love as it's expressed in action. Love is demonstrated in the church in this way. And we're going to go through 15 of them. I'm going to try to go through them where we, you know, I can't go in great depth, but hey, it's important. You know, he's chosen these 15 very carefully because there's eight of them that have to do with what you don't do. And there's seven of them that have to do with what you do do. And let me tell you, of the eight that you don't do, the Corinthians were doing all of them. The seven that you do do, they probably weren't doing many of them, okay? Uh, we want to make sure, though, that as you're listening to this list, you know, we do application at the end, but this is application through the body of this text, okay? So when you're listening to these, think about these. Think about these actions in relationship to your own life. Think about them, okay? Because let's, let's look at um, verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Fifteen of them, did you get them? All right, so first of all, it's demonstrated by being slow to anger and long-suffering. And I don't think it's any accident that the first expression of love he has is patience. He says, love is patience. Why? Why did he choose patience first? You know, um, in, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, then, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Where do you do that? In the church. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. And then you know what he says? Be patient with everyone. You can't just do these things and think, okay, I did that, you're done, you're fixed, go on. Doesn't work that way. We have to be patient with one another. Why? Why, why be patient with one another? You know, I just go back to that 1 Corinthians 12 where it says... You know, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body, I mean, were, uh, uh, hearing, where would there be this sense of smell? And then he says in verse 18, but now God has placed the members. God has placed the members, each one of them in the body just as he desired. So why would we be patient with one another? Because when you look at that person across the table, you got to understand God put him here just like he did you. Treat him like that. Important. The Greek verb is translated as patient. actually means to be forbearing in respect to the actual offenses and injuries one receives from others. Oh, yeah, you mean we actually hurt one another once in a while? Yeah. 
Yeah, we do. And when, when we do, this would tell us to be slow to anger and long-suffering. It signifies that one is slow in anger, slow in avenging. As God is forbearing with us, so we must tolerate our fellow man. It's like that picture in Matthew 8, 20, 18, 26 of that unforgiving servant. Remember that guy? He was forgiven everything, and then he didn't forgive that man anything. That's not a good picture. Look, Paul encouraged the Ephesian church to carry out the mission with patience this way. He said, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. In love. So love is patient. Love is kind. Kind, demonstrated by being tenderhearted and forgiving one another's offenses toward one another. Very clear in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has what? Has forgiven you. Now we begin to get into the knots. These are the things that you do not do. And the first one that you do not do is don't be envious of another person's success or achievements. Think that had something to do with the Corinthian church? Yeah. That's exactly where they were. That's why there were factions and uh, all of those uh, desire to be connected with the elite person and the elite groups. They were envious of one another. Well, envy is definitely a problem in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul said, but you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? See, jealousy is vice that's the exact opposite of love. But love is free from envy. Love does not brag. It's not seeking recognition for administering their spiritual gift. Brag, the word is vainglorious. It's used to describe the pompous windbag who says in chapter 1, verse 17 or 2, 1, that they're superior in speech. And they so enamor the Corinthians that it fosters their boasting. The braggart's behavior is marked by egotism, condescension towards, towards subordinates. It exhibits pride in himself and his accomplishments. But it's devoid of love for God or one's fellow man and it's blatant sin. But bragging in the next one go hand in hand. That would be arrogance. Arrogance. Love is not arrogant. It's that puffed up, right? What puffs up? Knowledge puffs up. Can makes one arrogant. Arrogant is one of the particular faults in the Corinthian church. Six of the seven occurrences of this verb in the New Testament appear in this letter. You know it's a problem. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. In verse 7 he says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had received it? 1 Corinthians 4.18, he says, Now some of you have become arrogant. 
1 Corinthians 5, 2, he says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned, so that the one who had done this deed would not be removed from your midst. That's when they were tolerating incest. That was arrogance. They were displaying arrogance. Paul says, Arrogance is inflated selfishness, while love is genuine humility. Love is constructive. It builds up. The puffed-up spirit blows up. Not acting unbecomingly. Not engaging in inappropriate behavior in any situation. Unbecomingly is a shameful behavior in general. It, it could be an allusion to that gross immorality, that man living with his father's wife, that incest. It's improper, it's inappropriate behavior in any situation. The Greek text indicates that such conduct is not in harmony with the established norm of even decency in the culture. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. You do see a kind of a stream of connection here. Pride and selfishness, big problem. So they're not selfishly seeking for their own personal gain. Love does not selfishly seek for their own personal gain and that over that of others. It doesn't seek its own advantage. Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10, 24 was, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 was, give no offense either to Jew or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. So that they may be saved. You know, what Paul's saying shortly is, look, love's not selfish. And he had shown them that when he ministered with them for 18 months. Just selfless, selfless love. He labored faithfully without any financial support by putting the needs of the others in front of his own. And, you know, in the church, love really flourishes in an atmosphere where two people trust each other and know that they will promote the welfare of the other person. That's, that's when you have confidence in the people that you're serving with in church. When you know them at that level. Where you know they're seeking for your good and you're just looking for their good. It's a great place. When you have those that are not just seek, seek, or selfishly seeking their own. Well... Goes on to say then that love is not provoked. It's not irritated by the behavior of others. Can that happen? Can you get irritated by somebody else's behavior? Do you? Of course we all do. But what love does is it does not go without accepting that person. You know, it's provoked, is that word is cantankerous. Uh, it means to be irritable. Love does not go into fits of anger, nor provoke anger in others with its irritability. 
Look, the Corinthians had some problems in their church. There were probably some scraping on one another's nerves. I mean, they were having the ones that were truly walking with the Lord, they were having to deal with those who were in factions that were in immorality, that had lawsuits. That there was some friction in this, in this church. And Paul was saying, well, love doesn't get irritated by that behavior of that other person. You're, you're seeing them grow and being sanctified as well. You need to be able to allow that to happen. Disagreements were common. Disrupted relationships happened. They were suing one another. And he had said that shouldn't be. Well, how is that not going to be? Well, it's not going to be unless they have love. That's why this is the, all these things are culminating into this chapter. Do you see that? How they're all, you know, the, this is what Paul says is going to remedy these situations with one another. You're not to be keeping a list of wrongs that you've experienced. You know, there's things that will happen to you along the way in a church. Why? Why do, things happen? Why do bad things sometimes happen to you in church? What is the church full of? People. People who aren't perfected yet. Sinners. And what Paul's saying is, look, I get that. I understand that. There's going to be some things that sometimes, and I hear that in this church, I wish, wish, wish it didn't happen. But you know what? If it did, forgive it. Don't keep a list of it and let it go. Move on. Right? Yeah, I mean, just... You can't keep a list of wrongs and look for a way to get even. That's not love. Love doesn't keep evil on the books. It's um, not looking for a way to pay back the injury that you've received. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 7, why not suffer wrong? Look, love's painfully aware of evil. It doesn't ignore it, but it tries to overcome it with good, and it doesn't keep a record to return evil for evil. Nor does it rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't receive pleasure from seeing injustice done to another. And you go, wow, when would that happen? Well, listen to what he said in 6 about these people that were suing one another. He says, actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But listen to what he says. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. How's that going to get fixed? With love? When they turn away from their own, promoting their own interests? And instead of receiving pleasure from seeing injustice done, they respond joyfully as a result of seeing justice done to one another. Rejoices with the truth. The verb means to rejoice together. He already said this in 1 Corinthians 12 last week. He said, look, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. One of the characteristics of love is its constant attempt to discover good and praiseworthy thoughts and deeds in a person. Love searches out the truth and rejoices when there is truth that triumphs over wrong. Well, I put the next four together because I knew we were probably going to be getting about this time. All right? So here they are. 
It says, love bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So love never tires of support, never loses faith, never exalts hope, and never gives up on one another. A great picture of that. You know, when, when we talk about bearing all things, 1 Peter 4, 8 said, look, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers over a multitude of sin. See, when you think of bearing all things, love's a virtue that throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. It says it believes all things. It always trusts. It's a quality that's ready to allow circumstances and see the best in others. It always believes the best. It hopes all things, hopes for the positive results that may be eventually realized. It's the opposite of being pessimistic about your brother in Christ, and it's the it's healthy optimism. It endures all things. MacArthur in his commentary says this endurance is a military term used of an army's holding a vital position at all costs. Every hardship, every suffering was endured in order to hold fast. That's that endurance. Boy, that, I mean, that's locking in. With who? With your brother and sister in Christ. You know that. When things get rough in certain times, you feel like the world's coming down on you, and you, here your brother comes in and locks in with you, endures all things. It's perseverance. It's tenacity in all circumstances. It, it means to endure in times of pain and suffering. Hatred, loss, and loneliness. So that's all 15 verbs. And all those 15 verbs did was define for you agape love. It's a love that is expressed in action. So look, love is essential for the church to be able to exercise the spiritual gifts. This love is expressed in action. It's never passive. It's demonstrated when church members are not being jealous, not bragging, not arrogant, not acting unbecoming, not seeking their own, not provoked, not holding on to a wrong suffering, not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but instead they're doing the things of being patient and kind and rejoicing in truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. This is the definition of agape love. And when present in the church, the church is effective in representing Jesus Christ and the credible witness of his gospel. Okay, so in, in addition to love being essential for the church to function and being expressed by actions, the last part of our lesson is it's eternal in duration. Look at uh, verse 8. It says, love never fails. But there are gifts of prophecy. They will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So, Again, there's that triad of tongues, knowledge, and prophecy. And they're all, he says, going to go away. But he says love, on the other hand, never fails. Love is eternal because God is love and he endures forever. It's one of God's attributes. It's going to be throughout time and eternity. While everything else in God's creation comes to an end, love continues. You know, in 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It goes on in 
verse 16 of chapter 4, is we've come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this love endures forever. But spiritual gifts are temporary and will cease or be abolished at the chosen time. See, all three of these gifts are transitory, and they're suitable for between the times. Oh, yeah, this is where the sermon comes in a little bit, between the times. Between the inauguration of the end, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the consummation of all things, when God will be all in all. It says when there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. That's what, when the prophet, who God spoke through, when we stand in God's presence, there will be no need for that prophet. There will be no need for the prophecy that continues uh, today through preaching. Then preachers will be, be out of job. No need for Sunday school teachers. We won't have a job. Look, once you're in front of the Lord, you'll know all knowledge. So the Greek verb in, used here to set aside or to pass away, something that has become ineffective. Prophecies and knowledge are overtaken by fulfillment and are thus put aside. Much as an adult discards things belonging to his childhood days, we discard prophecies and knowledge because we only prophesy in part and we only know in part. It says, if there are tongues, they will cease. And we'll talk more about that next week. Tongues will be stilled. In the very presence of God, there will be no reason and no place for the kind of revelation that tongues bring. It says divine knowledge is incomplete and prophecy is partial, but both will be unnecessary when all knowledge is completely known and understood. Verse 8 says, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. And verse 9 says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul explains that whenever the perfect comes, what is partial, and what is partial is knowledge and prophecy. You understand, we haven't been given everything that we need to know. Why? Why haven't we been given everything now? Because we have these brains, and they're not quite capable of understanding everything about God. And you know what happened to those brains at the fall? They got corrupted. They're depraved. Our minds are not capable of understanding everything, but we have enough. We have enough to be saved. We have enough to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We have enough to serve in the church. But Paul says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And you know what Tom was talking about today? He was talking about the consummation of the ages, wasn't he? And there was a lot there. But at the, at the, at the end of it, we're going to be in a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 22, 3 says this, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. They will, have, they will not have any need of a light of a lamp nor the light of a sun, because the Lord will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. Look, human gifts shine glorious in this world, 
but will fade to nothing in the presence of what is perfect. One of the commentators I read said, but they'll also have served their purpose of helping to build up the church during the wait and bring it to the threshold of the end. But when the anticipated end arrives, that consummation of the ages, that new heavens and the new earth, when we'll be face to face, they will no longer be necessary. That's why in verse 11 he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. That's the comparison to how we live here versus having full knowledge. He says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. So there's, an, a, you know, certain activities are no longer necessary. Prophecy and knowledge are suited between the times and for this period. But at the consummation of the age, they will be discarded because they're no longer useful. See, now it says in verse 12, we only see in a mirror dimly. Our knowledge of God is here now is imperfect in contrast to what it will be in the new heavens and the new earth because, because then it says it will be face to face. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children. It's not appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But see, for now, now we know in part But then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. How will you know? You will know fully just as you have been fully known. How are you fully known? Well, I'll tell you how you're fully known. This is what Psalm 139 verse 1 says. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. How are you known? You are fully known. He says, even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you knew it all. That's how you will know in this eternal state. Now you know in part, but then you will have perfect knowledge, and we shall know as we have been known. Finally, in verse 13, it says, but now faith, hope, and love Abide, these three. So the most important things, the most important things are not tongues and prophecy and knowledge, but faith, hope, and love. And there's nothing greater than what? Than love. It says the greatest of these is love. So not only is love a spiritual gift partial, and that the spiritual gifts are temporary, but love is also superior to the virtues that are absolutely essential to being a Christian. Faith and hope. And love. So, all the problems in the church really stem from the Corinthians' lack of love for one another. Paul explained the essential nature of love for the church to function. It had to be there. He taught how love is expressed through their actions. And he showed them how it's eternal in duration. And of course, his final point, his final point that we didn't include in this set of verses but it comes really early in the next verse. His final point really is in chapter 14, verse 1, where he says what? Pursue love. That's our application. That's for all of us. That's what he says out of all of this teaching, this beautiful chapter. He comes to the Ecclesiastes and says, look, you know all these things now. The eight things you don't do, the seven things you do do. Pursue them. Pursue love. Let's look at the application. 
So embrace the privilege to serve your church with your spiritual gift. It's last week's lesson, but I had to go back and say, look, each one of you is a gift, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Man, we got to know that. we got to understand that. There's nobody here, nobody sitting at, this, at these chairs today that if you haven't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he hasn't given you the ability to, to, to serve spiritually. And we need to do that. We need to do that. And if you haven't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, make that your effort today to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. To understand, look, you can serve the creator, the holy God. That even though you are a sinner and you are a condemned sinner that, is, that would be on your way to hell, were it not for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, fully God, fully man, who lived the perfect life here, who earned the righteousness that we can't earn, who went to the cross to receive forgiveness for our sin that we couldn't do. When we come to him in faith, then this is our now in serving in the church in our eternal future with the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace your privilege to serve the church with your spiritual gifts. Examine your heart to determine the motivation for your service in our church. You know, the great thing about that is if you examine your heart and you're desiring to, that it's love that is what is your motivation, you're not doing it so that you can get something back from somebody else. You're not doing it so that you can be exalted by those around you. You know what? You're looking to one person. Who are you looking to? Jesus Christ. You're looking to the Lord. And he's never going to fail you. He's always going to appreciate your service. And then review the 15 verbs used to define love in our church and determine to excel still more in these actions. You know, that, those wonderful verses from chapter 13, 4 through 7. Review those. Go back to those. See if those are matching up with how you're living in this church. Are those evident in you? Are you not doing the things you're not supposed to do? Because Ephesians 4, 1 says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility, with gentleness, and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. He says in 1, Corinthians 4, or 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request that you exhort you in the Lord, that as you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk, what we just said, and please God, just as you actually do, that you what? That you excel still more. And then finally, glorify God by reflecting the love he has shown you to your brothers and sisters in our church. In our church. This is our church, right? For John 13, 34, is a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Countryside Bible Church needs to be known as a church 
that has a great love for God and a great love for one another and anybody else that comes through our doors. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous, beautiful, wonderful chapter you give us here on love in the midst of an instruction on the church. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that you have indwelt us with the Holy Spirit, that we might understand your admonition to us, that we might understand uh, our relationship to you and our relationship with one another. And as a result, that, Father, we may love you and we may love each other selflessly as your Son has so demonstrated for us. May we follow in the steps of Jesus in the way that we exhibit that kind of love. Even as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. May we be those that understand our great need to follow through with these commandments that your church might be as you desire. Lord, that it might be a great witness of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his gospel. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.